Thank you. Let's pray as we get into God's word again. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the living word of God and for the way that it is life to us and light to us. And we pray that now you will come and illuminate our hearts and give us a fresh understanding of this essential passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you'll remember over the last few weeks, we've been talking about some of the uh, perhaps peripheral things of how you do church when you come together. Not peripheral in importance, but they're peripheral to the center of the gospel. We've looked in verses, uh, in chapters 12 through 14, at spiritual gifts, uh, prophecy, tongues, the whole body of Christ working together, and remembered that love has to be the center of everything. And we've also noted, uh, particularly last week, the words translated in some versions of the NIV just as brothers or is a Delphoi. And that means clearly throughout the book, brothers and sisters, and the impact that that had on how we read verses 26 through 39 last week. If you didn't hear that, do listen again on the podcast. Paul, at the end of this section, though, wants to get us back to basics. And so he comes in hard here in chapter 15, verse 1, and says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. I want to remind you of the gospel. Now, what gospel is it? Gospel means good news. And what is the good news uh, that Paul is talking about? Why does he want to remind the readers about it? Well, he spent a number of chapters unpicking problems in the church. There's been the sexual immorality stuff. There's been the food laws. There's the how do we do worship. And like with any good leader of a church, he wants to reorientate them to what is the most important thing of all. It's easy for us to get stuck in thinking about the form, the structures, the substance. Our pet hates and things. You could spend hours on a committee talking about the color of a carpet in a church. Probably not in the first century, but in the 21st century, entirely plausible. He wants to remind us what is the most important thing, and it's the gospel. And what gospel is it? It's the gospel I preach to you. I preach to you. Paul oozed out of himself the gospel. The idea behind preaching is a communicating of something of utter importance, a God breathing through the person, through the scriptures, and out to the hearers. It's not that he's gone and done a little pep talk, a little information sharing, a little bit of a, come on guys, let's try harder on this. It's a preaching of good news, an impartation And we know it's an impartation because he then says, which you received, it was imparted to you. It wasn't just a Times column or a Times editorial statement. It is something on which you can take your stand. It's not opinion, it's solid ground. Now, you'll remember, of course, the most famous passage in the gospel about something that you stand on is at the end of Jesus's famous sermon. Do you remember how he talks about the wise and foolish builders? And at the end of it, he says, if you stand on my rock, on the solid rock, if you build on the solid rock, my words, then you are a wise builder. And he's saying, stand, build on the solid rock of the words about Jesus. On this gospel, he says, you are saved. Safe from the storms of life. Safe from the vagaries of other people's ideas and imagination. Safe from your sin. Safe from your pride. Safe from your tendency to do wrong. You are saved by this gospel if 
if you hold firmly to the word I have preached to you. I came in this morning on Dennis talking to someone who's recently become a Christian, and he asked her the very wise question, uh, where would you like to be in 30 years' time? Or to put it another way, what would you like a 30-year-old, 30-further-year-old version of yourself to say to you about this point where you've become a Christian and decided to be baptized? And she wisely replied that she would like the older version of her to be able to say to her young self now, you made a great decision on your baptism. You made the right thing, and I've carried on in the direction that you set out in 30 years ago. And Paul's saying, if you hold firmly to the word preached to you, you continue to be saved. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. You've believed in vain. Now, in this particular passage, it doesn't spell out the ums and ahs of backsliding and the vagaries and the sometimes we're hotter, sometimes we're colder, sometimes it feels like we go through the dark night of the soul and we feel God is absent to us. In this paragraph, he just simply puts it down in black and white. If you don't hold firm to the word I've believed in you, you have believed in vain. The concept is this is a continual exercise. It's not a one-off decision of, yep, I believed in Jesus, tick that off, I'll now do whatever I like. It is an ongoing process by which you carry on being changed by the good news of the gospel. In other words, to put it in an analogy, through your life, having worked out where the light is, are you going to walk towards the light or are you going to walk away from the light? The moment you believe positions you walking towards the light, and you need to then carry on walking in that direction towards the light. It's no good working out where the light is and then walking backwards, even if you're facing the light still. There's no indication that the light is drawing you to itself, that you have been changed by the light, that you understand the purpose of the light. A Christian conversion involves repentance, which is a renewing of the mind. And repentance means you are aligning yourself in the way you should go, and you're going to carry on in that direction until you get there. And we won't get all the way there in this life, but the Christian is someone who knows whom they've believed in, who is saved, who holds firmly to what they have been preached to them, and carries on in that direction towards the light. Of course, from time to time, we'll get it deeply wrong, and we'll have to repent as many of the great heroes, one of whom he mentions here is Peter, have done as well. And we'll maybe have to do that on a daily or weekly basis. But fundamentally, if you've heard the gospel, it saves you. Carry on firmly in it, or you've believed in vain. So now he's going to spell out what this gospel is, just so we're not in any doubt at all. And that's in chapter 15, verses 3 to 8 of 1 Corinthians. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So Christ died for us. That's the first key thing of the Christian faith. The Christian faith orientates around a gallows, around an electric chair equivalent, but a more bloody and gruesome one, a cross on Calvary, a commoner's way to die in agony. The Christ the God, man, died for our sins. He died 
for you, for me, for the wrong we'd done that separated us from God. He died for that. That is the heart of the gospel. The second thing is, uh, in addition to it being that Christ, the God-man, died, and that he died for us, is that it was according to the scriptures. This wasn't a vague idea on uh, one sunny morning to impregnate a virgin with God and see what happened next, and it all went a bit wrong. This was God's plan from the beginning to redeem us, as spelled out in the scriptures way back in Genesis, uh, where Eve is told that her offspring will crush the devil. This is what was planned from Genesis onwards. So, but it doesn't end just with his death. He was buried and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Peter, to the 12, to 500 of the brothers, to James, and to Paul, as one abnormally born. The Christian faith, he's saying, is a historic faith, a verifiable faith, an evidenced faith. It's not a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's not a whim, it's not a mystical experience. It's based around a man who lived, who died for us, who was raised and now has appeared to all sorts of people. There's a historical concrete reality that we join in with. It is not a made-up fantasy or an emotion. It is a fact of history. And he says you can check it out with more than 500 people who saw him at the same time, some of whom are still living. Go and test it for yourself, he's saying. This isn't a made-up story. It's not a hallucination. 500 people don't get that same hallucination at the same time. This really happened. And it also, he is able to say, happened to me. So the gospel is a firm thing. It's something worth believing in. It's something that's historical and accredited. And those who are going to be people who carry this gospel will be affected by this gospel. It will change you to realize that you needed help. If you're going through life thinking, I can do it my way, you will never be changed by the gospel. But if you approach the gospel going, ah, something's wrong and I can't do this all by myself, incredible transformation can happen in you. You remember the early stories of Paul's life when he was still known as Saul. He was a rash man. He was a persecutor of the church, verse 9. He was someone who saw himself as more right and more holy than other people around him. He had been a particularly zealous Pharisee of the right sort of tribe of Benjamin. He had been trained by one of the great leaders of his day, and he saw himself as one of the best of the Pharisees. But now, a few decades later, having been deeply affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ, having realized that he hadn't been standing on firm ground before encountering the gospel, he now is a changed man. And verse 9 is an extraordinary statement from one of the people who is one of the most prolific writers of the New Testament after the, uh, the apostle Luke, the doctor. And he says this, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. There's something about hanging out with Jesus and understanding his gospel that over time humbles us 
so that we realize that we don't have a leg to stand on, that we have nothing to our credit that says, I am good enough for God. There is nothing in our ledger that says, yes, I've made it. Yes, I'm the man. Yes, I'm the one. The more you hang out with God and the closer you get to him and the deeper your revelation of him, the more you're inclined to realize how far short of God's glory you come on your own. And Paul, over this 20-year journey, has got to the point where he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Earlier on, in one of his earlier letters, he says almost the opposite. He says, I went to see those who seem to be apostles, not that I'm any less than they are. That was an early stage in his journey in the book of Galatians. This is a midpoint. I'm the least of the apostles, don't even deserve to be called them. His end point is even more humble. He describes himself as the chief of sinners in one of his final letters. See the progression over a lifetime of someone encountering the gospel more and more. Not that he's got more down on himself, it's not that his self-esteem's gone out the window. No, it's he's seen the glory of God more and more clearly and realizes how small he is, which is what his name means, compared to the awesome glory of the living God. He has himself, friends, in proper perspective. And yet, when you've got yourself in that proper perspective, it doesn't make you down on yourself. No, it enables you to work for God's glory, knowing where the credit should go. Verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of the others, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. He's a man who has found a power from God to work through his weaknesses, and he knows that it's not in vain, it's not without effect, the grace that has been given to him. It has had an impact, and one of its impacts is creating this church he's now writing to. He knows that's entirely the work of God, but he knows also that in his weakness he's been part of that journey and story, and that he must carry on contending with them that they don't believe in vain. So finally, in verse 11, he concludes this little section by saying this, whether then it was I or they who spoke to you or preached, This is what we preach, and this is what you believed. In other words, don't worry who it is uh, who's imparted the gospel to you. Don't worry what conference you've been to. Don't worry what experience you've had. Don't worry how you found out about Jesus, whether you grew up with it from the cradle or you got it in an extreme conversion. Are you trusting in the core message of Jesus, that he died for your sins as promised and prophesied in the scriptures, that he was buried and raised and has historically and verifiably appeared. Are you putting your faith in your direction for your life on that reality? Is that what you've believed? And if it is what you've believed, hold firmly to it so it's not in vain. Paul is getting out of the way, even as soon as he's mentioned himself, and saying, it's not about me, it's about the gospel of Christ. Friends, let's be those who point people consistently back to the gospel of Jesus.
Someone comes to us in a time of trouble or a time of need. Do we point them to ourselves or do we point them to the gospel? Someone's broken and fragile. Do we tell them there's a rock to stand on or do we get them to lean on us though we might fall over as well? Let's point people back to the rock, back to the gospel so that our faith and our belief is not in vain. And remember that our faith is based on verifiable, wonderful, glorious, majestic, verifiable historical facts. May God bless his word to us today. Amen.